0: I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Today's show is Strike Through the Mask.
1: They have taken on, told millions That
0: they never
1: toiled to earn
0: the mask being the so-called normative history of progress as it's been written and taught to children, nearly disappearing the struggles of the workers of the USA to overcome continual depredation and great violence at the hands of capitalist owners, who often unleash state power against the nation's citizens.
1: That the union makes us strong. Is solidarity forever.
0: Our opening song is the unofficial anthem of labor, Solidarity Forever, sung by Leonard Cohen at a sound check in Birmingham in the UK in 1979. If the chorus, meant to be triumphant, seems wistful, perhaps that's appropriate, as this was recorded on the cusp of US President Ronald Reagan's firing of nearly 13,000 air traffic controllers in 1981, all but destroying the power of unions in the United States. Solidarity Forever was written in 1915 by Ralph Chaplin. In an essay from 1968 titled Why I Wrote Solidarity Forever, Chaplin says that, quote, what hung precariously in the balance at the time Solidarity Forever was written was first a choice between political action at the ballot box and direct action at the point of production for the attainment of immediate objectives. And secondly, a choice between armed insurrection and the general strike As a means of putting the parasite and outmoded capitalist system in its place. It was as simple as that." My guest today live via Skype is historian Eric Loomis. Loomis has written A History of America in Ten Strikes, published by the New Press, challenging all of our contemporary assumptions around labor, unions, and American workers. From the Lowell Mill Girls strike in the 1830s to justice for janitors in 1990, these labor uprisings don't just reflect the times in which they occurred, but speak directly to the present moment.
1: It is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines, built the workshops, endless miles of railway laid, now we stand out starving Mid these wonders we have made. But the union makes us strong
0: Loomis focuses on the necessity of government supporting workers' rights for there to be any union movement. Literally, the state has to protect the worker and their rights. The right to strike, the right to sit down, the right to slow down, the right to have a voice in their very lives. It only happens in the U.S. if the power of the state, that is, the force of law, is utilized in the service of those workers' rights. Unionism is a shell of what it once was, and 80 years after an historic labor victory via an illegal sit-down strike at the GM plant in Flint, Michigan, made possible by a New Deal governor, we are faced with a Flint whose people have been poisoned and their lives destroyed, by a right-wing plutocratic governor in service to big business and white supremacy. What can be done? How can we be in solidarity today? Eric Loomis points us to the Service Employees International Union for an answer. But we'll begin with the most despicable aspect of U.S. labor history, slavery, to show how people, the working class, can and must resist being defined as the means to an owner's ends. And now, Strike Through the Mask with Eric Loomis on Interchange on WFHB. Eric Loomis, thanks for joining us on Interchange.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Eric, uh, labor history, it's practically non-existent in the U.S. Why is that?
2: Well, too often I think Americans don't think enough about themselves in terms of workers. Uh, You know, that it's uh, it's not something that we... Uh, focus on in terms of how we teach our history um, we're often taught a lot of myths about our past about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and you know earning what you uh, work for and all of this all this stuff uh, and these are basically very powerful myths uh, that are uh, uh, it, that are intended to undermine class organization and consciousness and I think that it's very important to uh, realize the reality of life for the vast majority of Americans throughout the history of this country, which is a life of of being a worker, and oftentimes that is a life without a whole lot of dignity. And I think that as the nation uh, becomes more unequal, as it is happening today, that is becoming increasingly obvious to a whole lot more people now than perhaps it was 20 or 30 years ago.
0: Well, you said a magic word there, class, right? Class struggle is uh, another uh, thing that we don't talk about. We don't talk about labor, and we don't talk about class, and these two go hand in hand in the U.S.
2: Right. I mean, think about, you know, when I say a national myth, I, I, what I'm really talking about uh, it doesn't mean it's, it's fully not true, but it means it's a story that we tell about ourselves. And Americans like to tell stories about themselves that focus on the individual and undermine or denigrate people working together to make positive change. And you know that's really damaging because what that does is it's really an intentional, uh, an intentional project by employers, politicians, and the wealthy to protect their own interests of, from uh, people organizing together to form unions to make demands, uh, whether that's demands at the workplace or, you know, in terms of other sorts of demands that are increasingly on the table today, things like, you know, a 70% marginal tax rate, Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, anything that would, you know, any way that Americans would come together as everyday people to fight for change is something that is going to threaten the interests of the wealthy. And so by by having us focus on the individual, by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, Never mind that most of us have not had boots to really pull ourselves up by through much of American history. It really serves a very ideological function for the elite in this country.
0: Hmm. So your book is A History of America in Ten Strikes, and uh, you've got a, a pretty important thesis throughout. And it's basically that without government support, labor doesn't really make any headway. Uh, is that That's basically what you're trying to Well, it's not the only thing you're trying to say, but it's a big part of the book, right?
2: Yeah, it's a critical part of the book. I, I think there's a lot of conversation out there today about how do how do workers make their way back? How do we fight this these in, these issues of inequality and attacks on unions that we see today? And and I, I think if we look through American history, one thing we have to reckon with, and there's really no way around this is that there's almost no examples in American history of a strike working unless the government uh, is at least a neutral agent in it. If the government and the employer unite against workers, it doesn't matter how radical the union is, it doesn't matter the strategy, it's going to be crushed. And there are just very, very few examples of unions winning anything in the face of outright government opposition, and so one of the lessons we have to learn here is that any strategy to rebuild workers' rights in this nation has to have a political strategy. Uh, It can't just be about striking or radical action. That's a key part of it, but it has to have a political strategy to put those victories into law if it is going to succeed.
0: Hmm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Eric Loomis is our guest. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Rhode Island and author of A History of America in 10 strikes. So uh, we're going to cover four of those strikes today, or try to anyway, uh, and we need to jump in if we're going to get to them. So you start with the Lowell Mill Girls strike in the 1830s, but we're going to skip over that and go to the chapter Slaves on Strike. And in this, you 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 follow uh, W.E.B. Du Bois in terms of the sense of the uh, enslaved African, African-American in a general strike against work. Tell us what you mean by combining the concept of the labor strike in this Civil War action.
2: Right. So w- really the most important labor action in the entire history of the United States uh, it had nothing to do with the union and it's not even a traditional strike. Uh, it's slaves simply walking off the plantations during the civil war. Now, if we back up for just a second, it's important to understand that the major labor system through the vast majority of the Americas, both the United States and into Latin America, as part of European colonization, was the forced labor of people of color for Europeans. Whether that's native or African, that was what everybody, English, French, Dutch, Portuguese, Spanish, all intended when they came to the Americas. And so this system of slavery that gets established in the United States, mostly, although not exclusively in the South, is the, basically the form of labor that Europeans are, are expecting, and it lasts for hundreds of years. And during the Civil War, you know, which is a war about slavery, and there's no question about that. All you have to do is look at what those uh, people who committed treason against the United States to defend slavery in 1861 said when they did this. They were leaving to defend slavery. Uh, that uh, what slaves realize pretty quickly is that, uh, uh, is that if they is that. When Union forces come near them, if they flee, it forces the Union army to figure out what to do with them. Uh, And that is uh, something that is really, really actually very important because the only people who weren't clear what uh, uh, what civil war was about was northern whites. Slaves knew what it was about. Northern free blacks knew what it was about. Southern whites certainly knew what it was about. It was about slavery. And so when uh, slaves begin to to flee to Union lines, all of a sudden the Union army has to figure out what to do. Abraham Lincoln has to figure out what to do. And they very quickly realized this is going to help them win the war and so uh, they begin to accept those those slaves in union lines this begins to force abraham lincoln to take the freeing of slaves seriously pushes for the emancipation proclamation but moreover it undermines the ability of the south to function nobody's making the food nobody's building you know growing the cotton that the south needs to to win that uh that that these slaves are taking their labor away from the South and it significantly undermines the Confederate war effort. And so, you know, the important thing here, so the the famed African-American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois famously calls this the slave general strike, and it is. It's just people walking off and fleeing to Union lines. And, and, you know, and the important thing to remember here is that ultimately they're the ones who freed themselves. Mm -hmm. Lincoln did take a brave stance with the Emancipation Proclamation. He faced a lot of opposition for it, but it was slaves themselves taking matters into their own hands. And refusing to work any longer for their masters, as soon as a Union army came anywhere nearby, there really was the uh, really was the tide that turned the war mm-hmm. toward the North and ended that horrible system of slavery.
0: Now yeah, you make the point here um, that you'll make throughout uh, that it's necessary that the. That this be in a state where the government at the time, the Union Army has to has to make something of it. You know, uh, the idea that if uh, I think you say or uh, at some point, if in 1835, uh, the enslaved population would have tried to stop working, it wouldn't have had any support.
2: Right. That, you know, that 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 basically, you know, slaves slaves resisted in any number of ways throughout the entire experience of slavery. Uh, it might be breaking tools. It might be slowing down. It might be stealing from masters. Maybe it's running away. And there's, you know, the very rare occasion of a slave rebellion that, you know, that, that, that always fails except in Haiti. Um, but I think that you see – the way that slaves acted during the Civil War as part of a continuum of slave resistance, and the conditions were right. In fact, if we look back, there's very similar stories in the American Revolution and the War of 1812 where slaves fled to British lines in both wars, uh, and the British kind of had the same reaction. They didn't really know what to do with them, but they realized that by taking these slaves, they were undermining the American uh, war effort, and so they accepted thousands of slaves, and for thousands of slaves, this was a way to become free. Mm. Uh, And so it's really part of a broader continuum of slaves always resisting the oppression that they face, and and African-American workers in the South and the North will continue, to uh, resist the oppression they will face after the Civil War as well, which will still be very, very significant because even for Northern whites, ultimately what they believed black labor in the South should be doing is laboring on cotton plantations for white farmers. They just thought they should get a little bit of money for it.
0: Right. So a, a shift to a wage slavery.
2: Uh, effectively, yes. And 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 that's, you know, and that's a term that uh, northern workers will begin to use uh, in the late 19th century that's saying that their conditions are not that dissimilar from those of slaves, which was OK, somewhat overstated. But but nonetheless, they felt that way. Uh, and it's interesting because a lot of abolitionists, many of whom were big time capitalists, who really believed in the, uh, the, the the rights of property more than anything else. A lot of these abolitionists really turn against labor unions and turn against white workers and black workers after slavery demanding labor rights on the job. So the the struggle for labor rights is something that you know, uh, is is, is always ongoing. And, you know, even when you have these big breakthroughs, like in the Civil War, it's still going to be a contested process for the really for the end of, you know, until the end of time.
0: Yeah, and we'll talk later in in the program about how the, uh, in a sense, uh, things like vagrancy laws and the Jim Crow laws that come up after uh, the uh, Reconstruction, uh, these things find their way into the National Labor Relations Act by who gets protected and, and who doesn't.
2: Yes, no, absolutely. That, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest thing for the white South after the Civil War was trying to recontrol black labor, right. because that, yeah, that's the whole point of slavery. Like, we think of slavery as a racist system. We teach it as a racist system. And of course, it is a racist system. But the point is a labor system. Without the labor system, there's no reason to have the slaves. And so, you know, for Southern for Southern whites, like that was the bit, the most important thing in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War is re-establishing control over that labor, and that's going to continue to be a critical aim of the White South for many many decades after the Civil War. And as you point out, will become part of Jim Crow. Right.
0: It's time for a break. This is "Julie" by Rhiannon Giddens, set during the Civil War. This song imagines a conversation between the woman of the house and a slave called Julie as Union troops approach a plantation. The white Southern lady presumes loyalty and even friendship from Julie. When we return, we'll leap ahead to the 1930s and an illegal sit-down strike at a General Motors plant in Flint, Michigan. Stay with us.
3: The soldiers have come Julie, oh Julie, can't you see That them devils have come to take you far from me Mistress, oh mistress, I won't run Cause I see down yonder the soldiers have come Mistress, oh mistress, I do see And I'll stay right here till they come for me. to love you and all you hold dear Mistress or oh mistress I will go leave this house and all I know Mistress or oh mistress I will leave here with what family I got left They're all I hold dear Trunk of gold is yours, my friend, mistress or oh mistress. I won't lie. If they find that trunk of gold by your side, mistress or oh mistress, that trunk of gold is what you got when my children. Mistress, don't you cry The price of staying here is too high
4: Mistress, oh mistress,
3: I wish you well
0: Welcome back to Interchange. My guest is Eric Loomis. We're talking about U.S. history seen through the lens of labor strikes. In this segment, we're going to turn to a doozy, and one that really illustrates the gov- that the government can do good in the world and in Flint, Michigan, of all places. Uh, Eric, this chapter is full of labor life. It's the 30s. It's the Great Depression. Uh, the key driver to labor uh, finding membership is just the, the status of uh, state of the economy at the time?
2: Well, you know, I mean, yes, the economy was terrible. Um, you know, it was the Great Depression. You had twenty-five percent unemployment in this country. Probably twenty-five percent of other workers were underemployed, working less than forty hours a week. Things are very grim. Um, but you know, also it was it was really the end of a long period, really a half a century struggle by you know the, by the working class in this case, mostly although not exclusively in northern industrial cities, to mm-hmm. demand and, and win dignity for themselves and. You know, for all that uh, half a century, you had different kinds of unions, different kinds of struggles, uh, many strikes, some of which are famous, many of which I discuss in other chapters. But, you know, the one thing that sort of uh, that the one line that connects them all is that nearly all of them fail in the end because of state, whether we're talking here about the actual states or the federal government, it's active opposition. To unionization and the use of the military, uh, whether it's the U.S. Army in some cases, although more commonly the National Guard or the state turning a blind eye to privatized uh, anti-union violent forces such as the Pinkertons uh, that uh, that 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 seek to crush those Mm -hmm. uh, labor unions. You have the Supreme Court rewriting laws that have nothing to do with labor unions to find against labor unions and make things such as strikes. Uh, Effectively illegal in some cases. Mm. And uh, this was, you know, so everything that workers tried, you know, they were mostly failing. And the very few successes that do happen in those years is because for one reason or another, the state managed to uh, become a neutral agent, Mm. right? So you get to the Great Depression, right? And things terrible. It's so bad that it really leads to a political revolution in this country. You know, this had been a Republican dominated nation really from the Civil War until the Great Depression. And, and then in 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wins a blowout election. And uh, he wins in part because of vast support from the American working classes. And then, you know, uh, there's a bunch of strikes in, the, in during his first term and they begin to force FDR uh, to respond with the beginning of american labor law so you have the passage of the national labor relations act in 1935 and this is what establishes the system of collective bargaining uh, between unions and employers that we still have today hmm. now we'll also, and then so then in 1936 again with the support fdr gets this overwhelming re-election right and at the same time in michigan home of general motors that you see these same workers elect a man named Frank Murphy, who was a big supporter of FDR to the governor, right? He he becomes governor of Michigan. And uh, so, and he he promises these workers that he will, if he's elected, he will not act against them. So, beginning of 1937, a bunch of workers at a General Motors plant in Flint, Michigan, sit down on the job. They're going to strike, but they're not going to leave the factory. And and that's illegal. Well, it's somewhat debatable at the time, but the Supreme Court will rule it illegal a few years later. Uh, But the critical thing here is that by sitting down, you don't allow the company to bring in replacement workers, which has always been a major problem, Hmm. right? So you go on strike, and then these scab workers come in, strike breakers, and you lose the strike. So they're not going to let that happen. And General Motors is furious, They basically own the Flint Police Department. So the Flint police are going to try to get them out of there. They don't don't succeed. And they go to Frank Murphy, the governor of Michigan, and they demand that Murphy send in the the National Guard. And Frank Murphy says no. And FDR is certainly not going to send in the military against unions in 1937. And so by by winning these critical elections and putting the right people in office they create the broader conditions that allow for this amazing strike to succeed gm has no choice but to surrender and and this leads to the establishment of the united auto workers They're really the the effective beginning or success of the CIO, that labor federation that will organize millions of industrial workers in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and the modern era of unionization in this country. So it's just such a critical, critical strike for any understanding of American history.
0: Now, you point out that uh, that there had been sort of— Um, You know, FDR's reaction to labor strikes had been uh, a part of responding to 1934 having uh, pretty pivotal strikes there as well, Toledo Electric, West Coast Longshoremen, uh, Teamsters in Minneapolis, and the textile workers, textile mill workers in the South. Uh, Part of what makes the book uh, to me as interesting as knowing that there are victories is just the way in, in, I guess, the ruthlessness of capital, the ruthlessness of these owners, the ruthlessness of the government when they side with owners, the way in which they beat uh, and uh, oftentimes shoot uh, workers uh, when they go on strike. So, you know, a, a big part of this book is trying to understand that kind of atmosphere, you know, that kind of milieu in, in the world. And as I was reading, you know, the differences in, in trying to employ people, like um, not always giving them full-time employment, as you say, under underemploying them as well, but in GM, not having work. Uh, for some part of the year and not getting paid uh, creates a very unstable work in, uh, working life as well. It st- struck me as being very much like the sugar plantations in Cuba under Batista before Castro comes along. You know, you just don't work part of the year and then what do you do? Uh, and that's kind of what it read like in, in, this, in this period.
2: Yeah, and, and, you know, really that is a, a pretty common uh, pretty common reality for millions of workers mm-hmm. in America, you know, whether it's agricultural workers, uh, the textile workers, the miner, you know, coal miners, uh, you know, there, a lot of workers are basically seasonal workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it, it's a situation where they might, you know, in a busy season, they're working 14, 15 hours a day, and then they might not work for six weeks. Um, you know, and I think somewhat tellingly, Uh, You know, for the government workers today, this is kind of coming back thanks to these constant, frequent government shutdowns. I right. mean, uh, I think that's an interesting way to, to look at it as well. We, we're starting to learn again about the instability of workers' lives when they don't have steady work. And, uh, you know, so now you have these federal workers that have been off for a month and they don't really know what they're going to do. And so imagine this is a systemic thing over years and years and years with no back pay when they come back, with no, uh, you know, with, with, with low wages under any circumstances, Sometimes with the companies owning the homes in which they live, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I think that the one thing we, we struggle with a little bit today is understanding just what the level of violence was against workers mm-hmm. through these years. It's really astounding. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of things in this country are kind of getting worse uh, in terms of labor issues today, but we haven't yet returned to this issue to, of, of just system- of systemic violence when workers go on strike, or even if they don't go on strike, but during economic downswings and things like this, that, you know, workers' lives were just incredibly tenuous for 100 years in this country.
0: Right, and I like that you point out uh, the way in which uh, workers' wives in particular, I, I think at some point uh, you, you know, you use the term a woman's, a women's auxiliary to support the strike not only you know making food and 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 supporting their their uh, husbands and, and, and brothers etc but but actually forming pickets themselves and protecting the workers from this violence when they can
2: yeah i mean i, I think that too often uh, when we think about work in this country and we think about like the you know if i ask my students you know, who is a worker <laughs> uh, i think for a lot of them what they're going to come up with in their brains is you know a white man Uh, in a hard hat, maybe working in a factory, and and okay, but, you know, women have always played a critical role in our labor history, it's part of the reason why I I focus chapter one on the Lowell Mill girls. But even, you know, but but there's no question that that women, a lot of women's work in this country has been unpaid labor at home, and right. that's actually a really critical part of our labor history as well. And, and you know, in a lot of these, uh, you know, industrial towns and things like this, women are not working in the factories, especially, say, in the 1930s, but it doesn't mean they're not really central to these labor struggles. They certainly are at Flint, as you described, but they are in many, many other cases as well. Uh, you know, women in 1921 for instance in kansas basically take over a coal mining strike and are in fact much more militant than the men are uh, to the point that it gets national public attention mm-hmm. um, Similarly, in the 1950s, with the famed Salt of the Earth strike, if any of your listeners have seen that movie, uh, which is a pretty accurate retelling of a strike that was uh, another minor strike, this time in southwestern New Mexico, where you had uh, women—you know—the strike is declared basically illegal through an injunction. Uh, they're not—they're not allowed to pick the mine anymore. But that doesn't apply to the wives, and so they pick it. They're throwing chili peppers in the faces of 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 mine agents and scabs and things like this. So oftentimes women play a really radical uh, and direct action role in many strikes through American history.
0: Yeah, we did actually have a show on the salt of the earth. It was fascinating, the women's role there, as well as the, the script being written by black, blacklisted um, producers and writers as well. Uh, real quickly, if you can, what, you know, what makes the, the National Labor Relations Act and the NLRB at the time uh, racist in, in a lot of uh, its uh, terms?
2: Yeah, basically the only way to get that law passed, and it's the same with the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 that creates the minimum wage and overtime pay and and things like that, the eight-hour day. The only way to get it passed was to exclude positions that were mostly held by black workers in the South, so agricultural positions, nannies, nurses, and things of this nature. Uh, In the end, you know, no matter how liberal the country may have seemed at the time, Any legislation still had to get through a majority of Congress and the Senate especially was heavily controlled by very conservative southern interests and they were simply not going to allow the empowerment of black workers. And so these unfortunate racist compromises had to be made or there was going to be no Labor Relations Act at all.
0: It's time for another break. This is Sit Down, performed by the Manhattan Chorus and written by Maurice Sugar for the Flint Strike. Sugar was an American political activist and labor attorney best remembered as the general counsel of the United Auto Workers Union from 1937 to 1946. A member of the Socialist Party, Sugar refused to register for the draft during World War I. He was indicted, convicted, and sentenced to a year in prison. He was disbarred for this but was readmitted in 1923 through the efforts of Frank Murphy, who was later to become governor of Michigan and a U.S. Supreme Court justice. More on labor strikes in the U.S. when Interchange returns.
1: Sit down, you keep your feet. Sit down and rest your feet. Sit down, you've got to be. Sit down, sit down. When you buy hands to the Union, sit down, sit down. When we'll they of look back, they'll take him back, sit down, sit down, sit down. Just keep your feet, sit down, and rest your feet,
3: sit down, you've got to be, sit down, sit down. When they tie the cap of the Union man, sit down, sit down. When they heel look back, they'll take him
1: back, sit
3: down, sit down, down we'll sit, down, down, sit down. down. just keep your
1: feet, sit down, and rest your feet, sit down, you've got to be, Sit down, sit down. With a smile that's plain, or raisin' paste it down. Sit down, sit down. down. When you want the fog to come across sit down. Sit down, sit down. Sit down, down. down, just keep your feet.
0: Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest tonight via Skype is Eric Loomis, historian and author of A History of America in Ten Strikes. In this segment, we'll turn from a successful private sector strike to what is perhaps the most devastating labor defeat in United States Union history. It's August 1981. The Union was the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, and the president was Ronald Reagan. We'll begin with a clip from his remarks from a question and answer session with reporters on August 3rd,
4: 1981. Let me make one thing plain. I respect the right of workers in the private sector to strike. Indeed, as president of my own union, I led the first strike ever called by that union. I guess I'm maybe the first one to ever hold this office who is a lifetime member of an AFL-CIO union but we cannot compare labor management relations in the private sector with government. Government cannot close down the assembly line. It has to provide without interruption the protective services which are government's reason for being. It was in recognition of this that the Congress passed a law forbidding strikes by government employees against the public safety. Let me read the solemn oath taken by each of these employees the sworn affidavit when they accepted their jobs I am not participating in any strike against the government of the United States or any agency thereof and I will not so participate while an employee of the government of the United States or any agency thereof. It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty th- this morning they are in violation of the law and if they do not report for work within 48 hours they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated end of statement
0: well the uh, the employees can't shut down the government but i guess the, you know the congress and the president can <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's reagan you know you can go through reagan clips uh, for about any left you know leaning show you want and just play it as a counter statement to any position you want to take um so, uh, Eric, in particular, this points to the difference between a public and a private union. Is, th- is there such a big difference?
2: Well, so unions that work, federal employees are legally not allowed to strike. Okay. Uh, so th- this is true. Um, But if you look at the history of public sector unionism, it's a a little more complicated than it usually gets played out to be. So there wasn't a lot of public sector unions, public worker unions, government worker unions for most of American history. There was an attempt in 1919 by the Boston police force actually goes on strike. Uh, and the government uh, of Massachusetts, led by a man named Calvin Coolidge, crushes it. And this is why Calvin Coolidge becomes vice President in 1920 and then and then President when Warren Harding dies. He just basically uh, fires
0: everybody, right? He
2: fires, He yeah. fires the entire police force. yeah. Uh, and uh, it's really devastating. Um, so in the 1950s, though, you begin to see at the city and state level, uh, particularly places like New York, uh, a little you know, the, the beginnings of, of new laws to allow public sector workers to form a union. President Kennedy in 1962 issues an executive order that sort of begins to, to create that process at the federal level. And so you begin to see uh, a lot of, you know, really t- tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of workers uh, in uh, who work for the government at the, the city, state and national level. Uh, begin to join unions in the 1960s and especially into the 1970s and they're worrying and so you know yes reagan is right they you know the the air traffic trolls broke the law in 1981 when they went on strike there's there's no question about that but there had been years and years of public sector strikes before this and and really to put this into a, a kind of proper context in 1970s Postal workers, mostly in New York City, go out on strike and uh, it's just as illegal for them to do so. But their conditions that were so bad, I mean, these post offices had not been updated in decades. It's cold in there or alternatively, tremendously hot. Um, You know, they're crowded. They're pretty bad places to work. And uh, they succeed. It's a massive success. You know, Richard Nixon doesn't know what to do. He's, uh, you know, he kind of makes some threats. He wants to send in the National Guard. But a lot of the National Guard guys knew these postal workers. And so it doesn't work. And Nixon gives in. And when Nixon gives in in 1970, it kind of tells a lot of people, including air traffic controllers, hey, like we could also go on strike. And so you had years of this ahead of time. And for that matter, when Ronald Reagan was governor of California, there were public sector union strikes in California and he didn't do anything against them. And so there's plenty of reason to believe that Reagan would not be that harsh. Uh, and so, you know, these the stories are a lot more complicated than just the workers going out on strike and then Reagan, you know, firing them now, of course that's what happens. Right? Right, right. But but there is this whole history and in fact, you know, the the great irony of this is that the air traffic controllers union had actually endorsed Reagan in 1980. They were they had such bad relations with the Carter administration and to be totally honest, this was a union mostly made up of white male ex-military guys. Mm-hmm. They were pretty politically and socially conservative. They were strong unionists But they were fine with most of Reagan's other platform. And so they endorsed Reagan in 1980, and it's a democratic process to do so. In fact, they had kicked out their leadership a few years earlier for not being militant enough. And so when they go on strike in 1981, they are pretty sure they are going to win. I mean, they had engaged in labor actions before. They had seen all these other labor actions succeed. But – This was, you know, first of all, shortly after uh, Reagan had been shot, Um, you know, he's kind of making a comeback and Reagan was very concerned about looking tough. And when his authority is challenged in this way, uh, he responds with this incredibly harsh uh, measure to uh, fire everybody. You're listening to Interchange
0: yeah. on WFHB. Eric Loomis is our guest. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Rhode Island and author of A History of America in Ten Strikes. Uh, Eric, the Reagan also, I mean, this is, um, this is an issue with the uh, uh, USSR at the time as well, right, uh, the, the idea of— uh, Poland and solidarity. Is anti-communism is back in play again?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, and and part of this is is that you know part of Reagan looking tough is that he's also very interested in looking tough for the Soviets, right? That he's gonna that he's gonna stand up to. You know elements in his own society he's going to stand up to the soviets as well and yeah i mean it is ironic you know the soviets were doing the same thing and in, in, in uh, trying to crush the solidarity movement in poland uh that was really the first you know big time independent workers movement against uh the communist dictatorships of eastern europe since world war ii so yeah there are actually a lot of a lot of parallels a lot of parallels to that, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So at this point too, once this happens, it kind of unleashes a lot of what unleashes the, the dogs of war on unions, right? The corporate war on unions begin.
2: Yes, I mean when when you know Reagan basically gives the okay for old school union busting tactics, right? right. I mean the air traffic controls union is destroyed; they all get fired, and uh, and and this tells the corporate world, hey, we can do the same thing, and so. You begin to see almost right away some of the biggest companies in the United States seek new ways to bust their own unions and go back to some of these old school pretty harsh tactics. Uh, This really gets uh, encapsulated in 1983 with uh, the uh, Phelps Dodge, which is the world's largest copper mining corporation. And uh, it busts its unions in the state of Arizona that had been around for 40 years, and they had a long-term contract with them. They closed the, the mines down, and they tried to reopen them without a union. Moreover, the state of Arizona actually creates a private spying police force to simply to help out – Phelps-Dodge in this activity, a revival of active state opposition to uh, labor unions. And this succeeds. And Phelps-Dodge does bust their union, too. That gets copied by unions across the country. Uh, And this is really the beginning, then, of the modern war on labor unions that has reduced the size of labor unions, the percentage of American workers that are in labor unions, to the lowest it has now been in a century.
0: Mm. Well, they're not alone, obviously. Hormel uh, does similar things or Hormel. There's a story about there's just a lack of solidarity uh, among Hormel uh, sites as well, or the factory floors. The the fear of reprisals at this time happens and, and workers begin to get a little skittish as well.
2: Well, yeah. And, and you know, a lot of labor leaders, you know, they, they had kind of come up on the idea. And by this time, you know, they've been that way for 40 years that think that Relations ultimately between unions and employers are pretty stable and that we're going to work together to create the a, a middle class and to continue this process that had been going on since the late 30s and, and the 40s. Uh, and so when uh, companies rapidly change the reality, they really have no idea how to respond. I mean the old history of, milit- of militant activity, it had been pretty long gone. Um, and, uh, you know, and so they, they don't respond well at all. Nobody knows what to do. And I think it's really only now getting toward the present that American workers are even beginning to start to revive that older tradition of militancy that helped create the labor movement to
0: begin. With. Now, there's uh, an interesting idea here uh, that. Um, I think it's I think it's called welfare capitalism, right? Where where the the actual industry, the work uh, the workplace, does its best to to create its kind of own union spaces within its industry, so it can regulate it itself, to to give some concessions, to not be pro union, to not allow unions, but to do things internally that seem uh, like things unions would do.
2: Right. So this is one of the strategies that uh, that employers have used over particularly beginning in the 1910s and 1920s uh, to try and uh, undermine unionization by creating sort of fake unions that are, uh, you know, that, that, that are supposedly give workers some voice but they don't actually give workers any voice at all. There's dominant, you know, so maybe you as a worker could take a complaint to this organization, and they might say, oh, okay, we'll, we'll tell the boss, but there's no power behind that. Right. Technically, you know, an official company union, uh, where that is an official organization, is, uh, is uh, outlawed with the National Labor Relations Act, uh, and then the Supreme Court uh, holding that law up in 1937. But there's all sorts of other forms of ways that, employers can undermine worker solidarity through cultural functions, whether it's, you know, giving away turkeys at Thanksgiving, you know, such as, uh, you know, my father's, my father worked at a plywood mill, and that's what his, uh, and they were non-union, and that's what his bosses would do every Thanksgiving and Christmas, we would get a turkey, you know, and Mm -hmm. this is some token of appreciation from employers that actually really didn't do anything except buy us a big meal, uh, and uh, and that, that sort of thing and everything like that basketball leagues, bowling leagues, uh, all sorts of little tokens of appreciation. These are all little ways that employers operate to try to uh, uh, undermine the idea of class solidarity on the job.
0: Yeah, they create a kind of false family in in some ways. Uh, you know, the um, um, it just it just strikes me as a, one of those things that. I don't know if, uh, I, I think I might consider the HR departments in most businesses somewhat similar to this, or at least giving you the illusion of, of protection.
2: Oh, there's no question and that that's what HR is for. I mean, uh, uh, you know, human resources exist uh, it's explicitly as an anti-union element. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's no question about that. And, you know, uh, HR kind of has this smiley face. And a lot of the people who go into, you know, I've taught students who are going into HR as a career, and they're mostly well-meaning people. But... This is part of the structural functioning of American capitalism, designed to uh, undermine or eliminate unions. Because in the end, the HR people, their job is dependent upon the employer liking them and liking their work. So there's no power behind it. So all HR does is undermine your power as a worker. It really, it really, you know, unless you have power and a voice on the job, uh, then you know, then, then you really have no. Uh, you have no authority at all in the job, and HR is not going to help you in the end. They're going to help the employer because their future employment is dependent upon that.
0: It's time for our final break. This is The Commonwealth of Toil, another song written by Ralph Chaplin. It's performed by Joe Glazer and Bill Friedland off of their 1954 album Songs of the Wobblies. When we come back, justice for janitors in the SEIU. Stay with us.
5: In the gloom of mighty cities, midst the roar of whirling wheels, we are toiling on like chattel slaves of old. And our masters hope to keep us ever thus beneath their heels And to
1: coin our very lifeblood into gold But we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will seem When each man can live his life secure and free When the earth is owned by labor and there's joy and peace for all In the commonwealth of toil that is to be
5: They would keep us cowed and beaten, cringing meekly at their feet They would stand between each worker and his bread Shall we yield our lives up to them for the bitter crust we eat Shall we only hope for heaven when we're
1: dead But we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will seem When each man can live his life secure and free When the earth is owned by labor and there's joy and peace for all In the commonwealth of toil that is to be they have laid our lives out for us to
5: the utter end of time. Shall we snagger on beneath their heavy load? Shall we let them live forever in their gilded halls of crime with our
1: children doomed to toil beneath their gold? But we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will seem when each man can live his life secure and free. When the earth is owned by labor and there's joy and peace for all, in the commonwealth of toil that is to be. When
5: our cause is all triumphant and we claim our mother earth and the nightmare of the present fades away, we shall live with love and laughter, we who now are little worth and will not regret the price we have to pay.
1: But we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will seem when each man can live his life secure and free. When the earth is owned by labor and there's joy and peace for all in the commonwealth of toil that is
0: to be. Welcome back to Interchange for our final segment with labor historian Eric Loomis We'll look at the Justice for Janitors movement in 1990 and discuss how the Service Employees International Union might offer a brighter future to labor organizing in the U.S. Uh, so, Eric, this is the last chapter of your book, other than the conclusion, uh, it, and it begins actually with what you call an absurd Supreme Court decision, uh, Janice versus AFSME Council Number 31 about fair share fees. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, back in the, the early 1900s, the Supreme Court would routinely rewrite laws and create speech categories that only applied to unions and basically acted on the principle of unions are bad and so we will find a way to decide that union activities are unconstitutional. Well, we're once again in that world today. Uh, and uh, in 2018, in Jana's case, uh, basically uh, you know, public sector workers Ah, uh, they, for a long time since the nineteen since like nineteen seventy seven, if you don't have to be a member of your union, right? You, you, nobody has to be a member of their union. But uh, you know, if a non-member benefits from everything the union does. So if you know the union negotiates for better pay, the non-union member gets that. In fact, for that matter, the non-union member has every right to be represented in, uh, you know, in a grievance hearing, if they're going to be fired, uh, whatever, the union still represents them. And in exchange for that, they pay what's called a, a fair share fee, uh, which is a contribution to the union as a whole to just basically cover the expenses of, of, of covering them and, and fighting for uh, the, the whole of the uh, bargaining unit. Well, the Supreme Court in 2018 ruled by a five-to-four majority, of course, with all five Republican justices opposing it, uh, that this was uh, unconstitutional uh, and that it was a violation of free speech to have such a, uh, a such a, uh, a creation. And, and this was intended to devastate unions, to take money out of the pockets of unions uh, by allowing people to be free riders, um, and effectively created national right-to-work for the public sector uh, all across the country. Um, And the idea being hopefully uh, for unions, uh, at least if you are a right winger, that the people will drop out of the unions and that it'll undermine those unions and undermine their ability to uh, donate to the Democratic Party, which is the real power structure here that uh, these conservative uh, groups are trying to undermine.
0: Right. So, um, you know. I. Eric, the, every, every time we have a conversation about unions, every time we have a conversation about uh, left politics, every time we have a conversation like this, uh, it's so – like I don't know how people think about the other side of it. You know, it's so easy to look at employers, to look at owners, to look at capitalism, to look at corporations and see that they clearly – don't have your best interests in mind. So I'm always confused that people are against unions. What's, what, can you, <laughs> I know that's not like, that's not justice for janitors right now, but I just, I just don't understand it. Is, is there a general sense for people that don't think that uh, community care is a good idea?
2: Well, you know, go back to these mythologies about America I was talking about earlier, this pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the idea of the individual undermining collective action in the stories we tell about ourselves. These are all powerful Um, and and they really very much influence the ways that people think about themselves and their relationship to their employer and the relationship to society. The other side of this is also important is the racial side of it. I mean one of the reasons that the labor movement is not strong in this country is because labor – is because white workers throughout American history have often chosen their identity as whites over their class identity. And this is a really important point so that if you're talking about, say, organizing the South. Uh, As the CIO tries to do in 1946 and in the 1950s to take this anti-union area and make it a union area, it fails because unions themselves get tarred among southern whites as being associated with civil rights and Jews and uh and that anti-semitism and racism even though the white working class is very poor is extremely effective in separating the white working class of the south from supporting unions mm-hmm. and so this the, the issue of race is absolutely critical to understanding uh why unions are not more popular why they're not more successful in 2014 i think it was 2014 uh you know in chattanooga tennessee uh, Volks- there was a volkswagen plant there and volkswagen itself wanted a union in that factory to get their German unions off their back. (laughs) Yet it still fails because white workers are refused to vote for a union because an outside right-wing funding campaign by the Republican Party tainted unions with Detroit Detroit being a black city, Detroit being a struggling city, and they effectively tell these white workers, if you vote for this union, Chattanooga becomes the next Detroit, and it's effective, and the union fails. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that racial issue is critical to our understanding of American labor
0: Yeah, the racial issue is uh, clearly there, but it's also uh, propagandized to such an extent that if you don't have that message coming at you, does it make such a difference?
2: Do you mean in the sense of if it if it if it's if it's uh, less active?
0: Well, yeah, as you say, the uh, Republicans, uh, various uh, wealthy uh, people out there paying to propagandize against a union by tying it to a racial, you know, uh, discussion, if that if that propaganda is not there, does does the union get find its way?
2: it might um but the problem is is that that propaganda is always there i mean usually it comes from the company itself right right you know so that's what makes this exceptional but american employers have always been going back to the 19th century much much more strongly opposed to unionization than european employers right uh and so you know if you go back to the 1880s even you see at the same time that american employers are beginning to organize themselves to uh, oppose unions French and British employers are basically coming to terms and signing, you know, early forms of contracts with unions, and and I think this gets back to this kind of individualistic aspect mm-hmm. of the American myth that is something that that we have to fight against.
0: Now we have very little time, and I, and I don't know that you can tell us all about justice for janitors, but I did want to, uh, I did want you to expand on the SE. S-E-I-U, because it seems to be the, the, the uh, union that's working so hard to organize uh, basically just-in-time employment anymore, the service industry being a, a really uh, horrifying way to, to sort of continue to be an unstable worker.
2: Sure. So in short, uh, basically, SEIU, which was this, you know, not that big at the time, service oriented union organizing against service workers, they organized a lot of janitors in big cities. And in the 1980s, their janitor contracts were getting destroyed because of this new wave of corporatization, consolidation and busting contract, busting union contracts uh, that their future was under attack and these were mostly immigrant workers, which is the future of the American labor force in no small part. Latino workers are, are, and, and African American workers are a huge part of the American working class as it exists. And and this is a really important strike by engaging in radical direct action activities in front of the buildings in which they were cleaning in. And if you're in an office, you don't know who cleans your building. You don't own the building. You work for some financial firm or whatever. You prefer not to think about it. And now. By by putting themselves in the face of these people, they put pressure on the uh, on the the building owners to make a deal, uh, and then the cops start beating the workers in, in a 1990 action, and that changes the whole thing. Uh, gets the LA political establishment on board, they win a big contract in LA, and they take this uh, they take this uh, strategy national, and they do a great job of winning a whole lot of janitor contracts in cities around the nation. But the broader point is that SEIU is organizing immigrant workers, Spanish-speaking workers, African-American workers to fight for you know, basic justice in jobs that do not have that. And it's important to remember here that the old jobs of the industrial core that once made up unions, steel mills, auto mills, rubber mills, et cetera, these were not good jobs before the unions came in. They weren't any better than these service jobs are today. They were terrible jobs. The union makes them strong. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening or that's the potential anyway of this new round of organizing. And the other critical part here is that for too much of American labor history, unions have been anti-immigrant, seeing immigrants as as, as threats rather than fellow workers. That's no longer tenable. You know, there are too many immigrants in the country to try to just say, oh, you know, we're not we're not going to organize these people. No, organizing immigrants is central to the survival of the American labor movement and many of the successful union campaigns that you're seeing today uh, and successful unions themselves, such as. You know, the um, the Culinary Union in Las Vegas, for instance, that's a huge power player in Nevada politics. It's largely an immigrant union. SCIU hmm. uh, is one of the largest unions in the country today, and a huge percentage of their members are immigrants or the children of immigrants. Hmm. Uh, even in the teacher strikes, you know, in Los Angeles, a lot of these workers, they may not be immigrants themselves, but their parents were immigrants. Great. And that's become the center of the New American Labor Movement.
0: Great. Uh, thanks so much, Eric. That's our show. We'll go out with the Dropkick Murphys. This is Take em Down. Thanks to Eric Loomis for highlighting a few of the strikes from his new book, A History of America in Ten Strikes, published by the New Press. Thanks, Eric.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Next time on Interchange, can the working class change the world? That's a big question. At a tall order, there's a lot to change and a little time in which to do it. Michael Yates, the editorial director of Monthly Review Press, joins us to answer that question. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Thanks for listening to Interchange on your community radio station, WFHB.